You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads connect us to the movies? Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, Kevin Getz, author of Audienceology, how movie lovers shape the films we love. And after the break, some thoughts about the black experience with the Reverend Gail Fisher Stewart. I, I love this actor, Ben Still. This is what Ben Still said about Kevin's new book. He is the guy when it comes to focus groups and audience testing. And Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks so much, Larry. It's great to be here. I have my own test about books because this is this podcast is for storytellers. And you're as known as the movie whisperer, so you understand what goes into telling a really good story. If I'm up at three o'clock in the morning and I'm thinking about the book that I'm reading, on Rotten Tomatoes, that's a 100% rating because three o'clock in the morning, I'm thinking about this book and what you wrote. And I gotta tell you, um, it's Bafo, it's really a hit. So let's talk about the subtitle. How moviegoers shape the films we love. Deconstruct that for us. But first off, thanks so much for those nice words. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, what I do is listen to the audience. What I do is listen to sort of the wisdom of the crowds. And there really is wisdom in the words and the feelings and the expressions of the audience. If you notice, I dedicated the book to the first the two people who sort of mentored me originally and, and opened this modern movie research business up in the late 70s, but also to all of those millions of folks who I've dealt with over the 35 years I've been doing this, who've offered their unfettered opinions and, and shared their feelings about movies. They really matter. The audience really matters. The art form of movie going is and, and and movie making, sorry, is an art form that is one of um, great artists coming together. It's not a singular vision, although there is a vision that is followed by the director and or producer, clearly. But there's many great folks that go into and artists that go into making a great movie, starting with, of course, the writer. And the writer is often um, not given the en enough of the, the credit when you want to talk truly about story. Uh, but then many other artists, the interpretation of the actor by the actors, the production designer, the cinematographer, the editor. It's not like you can make, uh, you know, you can write a novel. If you don't like the novel, you know, you put it in the back of your drawer. Right. Right. You, you create a painting as an artist and you don't like the painting, put it in the back of your closet and never see it again. But not so with the art of filmmaking. That is something that is meant to be shown to the masses. And so to not include the audience in that conversation is really a big slight. 
Let me share a story because this, once again, is for storytellers, uh, authors, singers, songwriters, people that ill could have something to say, as well as people who come on and do commentaries. I'm going to share a story with you because a lot of writers come on this program. And early on in my television career, a young man came into my studio and he just written his first novel. And eventually he worked his way to Hollywood. That young man was named David Benioff. The book was called The 25th Hour, which I believe Spike Lee's adaptation of the movie was terrific. So the question I posed to you, and I saw you kind of eyes light up when you mentioned David, because um, Game of Thrones with his partner, a monster, monster project and hit for HBO. So every, a lot of things, when, and you can talk about when you bring a test audience into a screening and focus groups, sometimes there's no expectations. When, when a book is out there, I know Nelson DeMille, and took him years and years and years for the general's daughter to be made. I know Joseph Cannon, the good German, George Clooney's movie. So it's a different when the book is out there, the writer is relatively well known. Does that kind of change the interpretation that focus groups have because they kind of have an inkling or an awareness where the movie has come from? Well, you know, in order, first of all, um, so many things to say about the subject. The IP of a book uh, is uh, clearly um, many, many great movies have come from books. And one thing that is really important that most listeners need to understand is that, you know, filmmaking is a different art form than book writing. And what I find most prevalent in mistakes that are made in the interpretation of books to the screen are that the uh, filmmaker, the director is too beholden right. to the source material and they're different mediums. So you cannot treat them the same way. I'm thinking of uh, that movie. Um, was it Goldfinch? Yes. Yes. You know, which I hear, and I never read it, but I hear it's a really fabulous, fabulous um, book. And it did not work as a film. And the question is why? And some things just are really, really difficult to bring to the screen. When I use my test screenings to gauge the reaction of a book, of a movie based on a book, I typically don't put most readers in the focus group. I kind of put people who some of book readers in the focus group, but most people who are, have not read the book, maybe they've heard of it because, and I don't allow the people in the beginning of the focus group to talk about a comparison. I say, hold that. I promise I'll come back to it. And I always do keep my promise. I always come back to it, but I don't want them to say, well, in the book, you know, so-and-so, killed the guy, didn't pretend to kill him, and then, but really killed, you know, something like that. And then, then the rest of the focus group is influenced by that comment. Rather, I want to hear what it does as in terms of standing up on its own legs as a movie. That is what I'm concerned about. And I often have to talk to producers and directors to, um, and editors to say, look, what you are trying to do here is be really beholden and loyal to the fans of the book. But often the book is only read by a very small number of folks. Book 
books are not as as you know, Larry. Books are not often big hits, but many movies are based on books, and so it's not the smartest thing from a business standpoint to try to just you know satisfy the fans of a book that is not hugely or widely read, because you want to increase your larger audience. You know. Now that doesn't mean that you don't respect the book readers, of course, the author, naturally, but the book readers, because some things are very, very sacrosanct and are very, very uh, important, right? To, uh, to they're very loyal and passionate advocates of a particular book. But still in all, the movie has to stand up on its own uh, legs and it's on, on its own merit. Every book, every movie, every stage play, in my mind, has an origin story. Where'd the idea come from? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about your origin story. A young man, originally from Brooklyn, then New Jersey, who was an actor, did commercials. Your journey from being a young actor to where you are now is really fascinating because you wouldn't, I mean, I'm, my guess, I read the book, so I know you have some acting experience. You've had, you've had a wealth of experience. You, were, you, were, you worked in a video store at one point. You've got a, a lot of things to help shape you the way you are. But that journey, I think, just interests me. I believe it's going to interest the members of the, who sign up for this podcast. Well, yeah, I mean, I still consider myself an artist first, I want to say. And I was not, I didn't dabble in acting. Uh, I was born to do that. I was, I, I studied at one of the best acting conservatories in the country at, at Rutgers at Mason Gross School of the Arts. I studied the Meisner technique. Um, I was uh, a young actor when I started. I was in single digits age-wise in my hometown uh, and then when I was a young teen, I became a pro and joined the unions by the time I was a mid-teen and, and worked all the way until I was almost 30 years old uh, in, on stages in and around New York. And, um, and as I said, as you said, lots of commercials, loads of them actually. And um, so I made my living that way. I'm a vested member of SAG and I understand and have great friends. I understand that, that profession really well. And um, and it, it kind of, the, the, the pursuit of acting was always a problem. I didn't love seating control right. whenever I walked into a room. Yet, I love the rehearsal process, uh, maybe even more than actually performing. No, I love performing too. And then um, the, the stuff that came with it was great, the access, et cetera. But the, the art of it was fabulous. The pursuit of it was a drag. And... I was a guy who was in control and needed to be in control of my own destiny. So at 17, I started my first business in acting and dance school in my hometown. Uh, I had about a hundred students and four teachers. And uh, then I had my own theater because I wasn't getting the roles that I liked. So rather than complain about it, I started my own theater, a professional theater, it was equity theater in um, San Luis Obispo. So I always took matters in my own hands. So I was able to meld and mesh the right and left brain really well, but I still consider myself an actor. Uh, I still consider myself an artist first. And I think that's why 
and and this is a little presumptuous on my side, but I think that's why filmmakers gravitate towards me and have requested me over and over again over the years, because I don't come in and and, and present a report card right. like grades. I speak with a certain degree of knowledge. I speak the film language. I've produced 12 movies myself. I understand what it's like to speak to an artist and what they put into this. And it's their babies. So although I have to come out and be very candid in my delivery of the results, I'd like to think I do it with a great sense of sensitivity and kindness and and hopefully elegance uh, because it's easy to criticize, right? It's far more difficult to give constructive analysis based on something that is pretty empirical, right? Audience feedback. It's not one rogue comment. I'm so, and I'm certainly not talking about my own opinion. I mean, everyone's got an opinion, as we know. Right. So if you heard this opinion, that opinion, no one would make something the same way, you know, this, this, the same way. It, let me give you a case in point, which I think is really interesting. It is West Side Story that just came out. Well, let's talk about the original first. I would call that my people ask me what my favorite movie of all time is. And 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 I, I usually say The Sound of Music and I say it because um, it, as an Academy member myself, it it speaks to the old so many different facets of filmmaking from the beauty of the script to the casting to the settings to the production design to the music to the it's just perfect and i think west side story is pretty close to it and very cutting edge at the at the time and just embodies so many different departments of movie making if you will that that uh, is what i said when i opened today uh, about um, the, the difference of the art of, of filmmaking so then you look at the remake And I have to tell you, I believe that it is a terrific, terrific, beautifully done film. Right. But I ask myself, why? You know, I say, like, what is the reason for it exists in a way? Like, what is the reason? Because if I gave the amount of money that Mr. Spielberg had, and he is arguably one of our greatest filmmakers, if I gave the same amount of money to, say, Baz Luhrmann, if I gave the same amount of money to Ron Howard, to Guillermo del Toro, to um, Inaratu or Ang Lee, they would come back and you, oh, and I said, you have, here's your assignment. You're going to remake this movie. You're going to set it in the same time. You can essentially change the, uh, the dialogue uh, to some degree, but you're going to keep the characters keep the you know main conflict you're going to use the same music you're going to you know ha- change choreography but but try to stick with the same feel of the choreography you understand what i'm trying to say you would get five beautiful movies because the source material is right. so damn good can, can right I, can i interject and so, ask- so i say no indictment to mr spielberg i just want to say that okay. because i respect him very very much but that's what i mean so it's like everyone's going to have their different interpretation, right? Right. All right, so on our Monday audience, my guess is Kevin gets the book is called Audienceology, How Moviegoers Shape the Films We Love. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson. Let's follow up on music and musical scores. I'm going to put out a few things that you write about in the book. And I'm a movie lover. You educated me 
but a lot of things. Because when I go in, I have an eye of an amateur. I've been around independent filmmakers. I've done some interviews. I've done some stuff at screenings, but I'm a pure amateur. So let's talk about the changing of the opening of La La Land, which was very controversial, what happened with the award ceremony at the Academy Awards. You write about that. I love the movie, but it was a changes through, I guess, uh, looking at focus groups and screenings with the changing the beginning in terms of the music and the score. Can you tell us about that? Well, the first screening of that was an experiment that um, that Damien Chazelle um, chose to, to to put in, I guess, and or the producers, which was essentially, um, uh, uh, you know, no opening on the freeway, right? Which was a musical opening, and instead it went uh, from the traffic jam non-musical to another scene to another scene to another scene. And finally, when the girls are together in the in the house, is when the first musical number came up. So audiences were really taken out, and and remember they didn't have any advertising to inform them of what this was going to be or whatever, and because they didn't get that it was a musical, it was really jarring and it was very hard to recover from that. They got into it, but you know, it was not the right tonality to start that movie with. So I think one of the best numbers in the movie was the opening. And when I finally saw it put in after our suggestion of you've got to tell the audience what they're here to see and relax into it. And I have many examples of movies that have done that, um, you know, have tried to set a tone that didn't work and they needed to go back and, uh, and, and start again, if you will, or put something else in to create that, um, that, 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 that sense of, um, information, really the sense of here's what you're here to see. You're here to see a comedy. You are here to see a horror movie. You're here to see a musical and to not have music in a musical up front was something that didn't work. Uh, and uh, as soon as they put it in, the scores jumped, you know, 25, 30 points. Are you also referencing Moonstruck with the opening of well, Moonstruck? Moonstruck's one example. There's, there's several, many others uh, where music in the beginning is so very important. But yeah, Moonstruck was an interesting example because, you know, the movie was very good. Uh, we were doing a screening. I think we were testing it in New York City. And the next night, I think Paramus, New Jersey, or vice versa. So the first night we did it, um, no one was laughing. You know, it, it's a, it's, I consider it a really a romantic comedy, if you will, but um, with, you know, sort of dramatic undertones and also, you know, maybe even more comedy than romance. Uh, and to not laugh was like, what? Uh, they were starting to laugh in the sort of the middle of the movie, but it took a way, way too long. And then when, when the postmortem occurred after the screening, you know, the director and the producers and the editor all went out to dinner and they discussed what was, you know, the, cause the scores were okay, right. maybe okay to very good, but they weren't great. They weren't stellar. And they should have been because the picture was that good. And Norman was very, very smart filmmaker and, and knew that something wasn't quite landing. And the editor said, you know, we opened with that very serious operatic aria. And it was very, you know, had that tone of, you know. <laughs> and so it got people in a very serious mood. 
And he said, you know, what if we change that musical cue in those were unmarried prints in those days where they would do, uh, you know, music on one track and picture on the other and they would they would come together so they could actually make that pretty clean break and put in a new piece of music, which they did, which, of course, was that's Amore. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's Amore. And that was a massive subtle change that changed so much immediately. What it did in a way was it informed the audience, hey, this is going to be fun. This is going to be a romp. We're going to enjoy ourselves. And that's what happened. And the scores went up 20, 30 points. And of course, the rest is history. The movie was a big hit. Cher won the Academy Award, yada, yada, yada. Uh, another example of that uh, kind of, uh, but not in the beginning and not with music, but a tiny or subtle change, one might think, was a movie called Hope Floats. Um, have you ever heard of that movie? Have you seen it? Yeah, and I know the story. Once you tell the story, I'm going to follow up with a personal experience, by the way. So continue. Oh, okay. Okay, if you don't mind. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the story is, of course, Sandra Bullock plays a woman who is coming back home um, and uh, moves in with her mother. Uh, and uh, she has um, uh, her, um, Carrie Connick Jr. is the love interest who wouldn't want to be in love with Harry Connick Jr., you know. Uh, and uh, Jenna Rollins plays the mother. Um, and uh, Sandy's character is, of course, Sandy Bullock is one of the most likable uh, stars that has ever graced the screen. Um, people have always loved her. I love her personally. Uh, I think she's extraordinary and a wonderful producer, by the way. And I believe she was a producer on that as well with Linda Oakes, Boris Whitaker directed. So we... Um, we're in the movie, and at the sorry, at the end of the movie, we 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 do the questionnaires with the whole audience. We do a focus group, and Sandy's likability is not where it should be for someone of her um, caliber, of her stature uh, as a star, right? Because you know she just brings this sense of likability to every role. And what we discovered in a very subtle way was that they were not very forgiving to her because she was not when her, oh, her mother passes away during the movie, General Rollins' character dies and she doesn't really grieve. And they thought that was kind of cold. So now cut two, Sandy's on to her next movie when we test the movie. So she's changed her hair color, et cetera. What are we going to do? They devised this wonderful thing where, you know, she came out of the shower. So in other words, they could tie her hair up in that towel right. so they don't have to see her hair. And she, it's a one minute scene. She comes into the bedroom. She goes into her mother's closet to borrow a piece of clothing or something. And as she's pulling, going through the stuff, she pulls a blouse, let's say out, and she smells it and her mother's perfume or whatever the scent of her mother is on the clothing. She smells it. She remembers her mother. She realizes she hasn't grieved. So she breaks down and cries in the closet. And it is so powerful, that little moment changes the whole trajectory of the character. Her scores, personal scores go up 20, 30 points. The movie scores go up the same amount. And um, and audiences loved her as a result. So little things like that matter. 
I'm going to circle back to um, what was your story, Larry? I'm, I'm going to circle back to another story because I think it ties into the book. Which you, want you to said you wanted to share something. Well, I'm going to share. I think if you don't mind, I'm going to share. I'm going to go back to the 25th hour. I'll tell you why, because it's relates. I'd love to hear, love to hear it, what you have to say. It relates to something that was a big surprise to you in terms of the screening. Um, Please. In, in the movie, the lead actor of the 25th hour was Edward Norton who is a great actor. You write about maybe the biggest surprise, the biggest thrill that you ever had was going to a screening of an unknown Edward Norton. Is that true? In terms of Primal Scream, was that the movie? Richard Primal Gear? Fear. Primal Fear, the Richard Gere movie is a great actor. Share that story because I think you had a really visceral re reaction to this, this young man early in his career. Well, what I was struck with, um, yeah, he is a marvelous, marvelous actor. Uh, I mean, the, the people that were involved with the film tell it best. I had heard a story that I was actually disabused by, um, by uh, I think it was Hawk, either Hawk Koch or Gary Lucchese, um, that Sherry Lansing, who was the head of the studio, had uh, thought that getting an unknown would be smarter because right. Leon, Leon, Leo DiCaprio, Leonardo DiCaprio had passed, had passed on the role apparently that was their first choice. But if you think about a Leonardo DiCaprio in the role, and those of you who don't know the picture is, it's a big bait and switch. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> um, the kid who is this uh, very uh, socially awkward, uh, injured emotionally, and I think physically kid, at least professes to be, is accused of murdering, right? Somebody, uh, I think it was a priest or something. And um, and so he is the prime suspect. Uh, we learn that he is um, fooling them the entire way right, right. by creating multiple personalities. And so, uh, or, or does he have them or does he not? That kind of thing. And at the end, we realize that he he got them. He he got them. And so, if you had. Uh, a recognizable face in the casting of that, it would have changed the audiences, um, you know, would have put the attention on the character knowing that something was going to probably happen more than it did. Because it wasn't until those final reveals that it was the beauty of an unknown, marvelous actor that was able to pull the wool over our eyes as the audience. And the audience recognized that and whether or not they designed it that way, because um, either, as I said, I was disabused of what I had heard that they did design it that way. I don't think they necessarily did, but it worked no matter how they did it. And it's good for your filmmakers who are listening to hear that, you know, casting, I've heard the, I've heard as much as 80% of success is based on your casting. You have to be so very careful in who you're putting in your lead roles. That is so interesting, and I'll tell you what, I've thought a lot about this. I thought, is a movie better with famous people because they're, they're bankable, or a film, even a small film, where you don't know anybody, you don't get caught up in personalities. I just watched The Heist again with De Niro and Edward Norton. And they were great together. They had scenes together, and Norton is really good at what he does in overtaking on another character. I think that's one of his 
greatest things he has in his toolkit. He can change. American X was a terrific movie, too, I believe. An amazing movie. So I think about that. So when you go in and you have a screening and it's De Niro and major megastars as well as gifted actors because that's two different things do you have to overcome that because they're coming expecting the persona of this great actor and their roles to take on a different persona in my mind sometimes you can get lost in what Al Pacino is another example of that this is Al Pacino this is Robert De Niro and it takes a while to get into their characters as opposed to an unknown like a young Edward Norton who you don't have your any preconceptions. You just kind of go with that. Do you wrestle with that? Do the filmmakers wrestle with that when they cast these films? Yeah, I, I think that it's an age-old problem. I mean, when you put even Catherine Hepburn and Betty Davis into a picture, um, Betty Davis less so, I think. Uh, she really became the character. But there was there's a time when you need to relax into the character. Right. But at first, the personality often usurps the uh, ability to get right into that new character. And that is, uh, you know, that's why I think Meryl Streep has always been the greatest film actress to ever live because she would just transform herself. uh, And you just like sort of look in awe of, but my someone as an actor myself, uh, I I'm always looking at what is she doing? How is she doing that? You know? So I have a different way of being pulled out of it. But I want to say the other side of that is that the audience will also be more forgiving to people that they know and love, because as you know, if you see stand-up comedy, let's say, and someone's having a really crappy night, um, the audience will forgive them. They'll give them five or 10 minutes before they will be turned off to that person. But if it were an unknown, they wouldn't get that. That's why unknown comedians, it's so much more difficult for them to get up and win that audience over right away. And I I find that very, very interesting. But at the end of the day, whether they are, to your point, taken back at first because the personality is larger than the character, the great performances always manage to work through that. But it sometimes takes a few minutes for everyone to just get settled in. At the beginning of this podcast, I shared with you how I rate books. If I'm thinking about the book while I'm researching it, while three o'clock in the morning, because I have insomnia and I wake up and I watch television programs, things like that before I fall back to sleep. And after the book is put down and I walk away from these interviews, I'm still thinking about that. That means a lot to me. There are certain films in my life that no matter what, they're always going to be with me, that I enjoy watching. I can put The Godfather on two hours into the movie. I don't care. I'm going to watch. <laughs> There's one film for many reasons, Goodwill Hunting, oh. Affleck and Matt Damon. But mm. the reason why it stayed with me, and you mentioned the word comedy. When Robin Williams died, it was nighttime in my house. I left my home. And I went for a long walk because it was just something about him and what he represented. Uh, James Lipton had a series called Inside the Actor's Studio. One of the greatest programs he ever did was with Robin Williams. I'm told there's four hours of that and they had to kind of color down to the hour for Inside the Actor's Studio. 
And now what I know about how Robin Williams suffered later in his life, but you see the early inklings of his character in that movie when Damon's character insults his wife and he pushes the kid up against the wall and chokes him. That was coming from a real place. That's real. Oh, That's oh. real, real acting. Oh, oh God. Uh, I thought that was his best performance. And of course, he won the Academy Award for it uh, because it was the first time I'd seen Robin work where I didn't feel like I was getting a wink right. Uh, right. at the audience. Um, you know, he's so crazy gifted. What's, what's what a tragedy. But, uh, you know, I've worked with him a number of times. I had the pleasure of meeting him, you know, you know, he, he, there was a certain charm, of course, but you know what, you always get the sense of a lot of comedians who really have very, uh, a very serious or, um, um, underpinning a lot of either rage, anger. There's a very um, dark side. There's an aerobic complexity. Dark is the better way right. to say it. Yeah. Complexity. When you bottle that and hone that, and the genius of casting him in that part, I mean, that was tremendous. And to have that, that's where the art to me uh, comes. And that's why you can look at that movie in any which way at any given time and still get right into it. It is such a good picture. And Everyone was so good in it. It really was a seminal movie, yeah. I want to mention a current movie. I was down a few weeks ago in Delaware. My daughter was getting her doctorate in physical therapy. So I was in a hotel room and and on Netflix, on the TV's screen in the hotel room, it was, an, it was a, not a great screen and it was an old TV. I watched The Power of the Dog. Oh. Jane Campion is so gifted. The cast is so gifted. And... I have the front page of the New York Times. The, re the reviews are tremendous. I remember somebody saying the movie was turgid. The, the movie moved at its own pace, at her pace. But what I loved about the movie... I, I think it's so geniusly and, directed. I yeah. can't even... I can't even... I agree with you 100%. Oh, my Lord. And where, where I'm going is because I know you do focus groups on... You had to change endings because the endings didn't quite get where they wanted to go. And you had to shift Thelma and Louise and some others... I thought the beauty of this movie was there were a couple of ambiguous endings in the movie left up to us to interpret. Just like that does, hold on, let me let me just tell you that is when we work on endings, that doesn't mean a it has to be a happy ending. Certainly, sometimes ambiguity is the right ending. Right, and audiences want an ambiguous ending, but many times they want to be led because they feel like it's too ambiguous and they're frustrated by it. In Power of the Dog, you're not frustrated by it. It was the right ending. But how many movies have you seen where you just want to go, oh, come on, you just had me for almost, you know, over two hours and that's how you're ending it? It's almost like they didn't, couldn't come up with something that put a, not necessarily a bow on it, but put a punctuation mark on it and, um, you know, look, I, I have my own, I thought the best movie uh, a couple of years ago is that movie with, um, oh, where um, uh, Coleman, Olivia Coleman played the uh, queen. Um, yeah. 
Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. And she's a gifted actress. She's really. And, but I thought the ending of that movie, there was something about the ending of that movie. And it wasn't the rabbits. If you remember the rabbits, I thought that was sort of interesting and so forth. But I thought that it begged for a crawl, begged for like some words because of Queen Elizabeth, when, not Queen Elizabeth, who was it? Queen Victoria? I think, I'm, Victoria? Not, I'm not sure, but it was one of the one of the queens. It was not Elizabeth, though, I know that. All right. It was, I don't believe it was Elizabeth. It was, I believe, Victoria, but uh, where uh, she, um, you know, went on to reign for another blah, blah, blah. I just, because, and here's why though, because I was sitting so stunned loving this movie. And because it wasn't there, it felt like it was purposefully not put in there. Right. As if the director was taking a stand or something. I don't know. But it felt like I was cheated as an audience member. And I remember that specifically going, damn, I wish they did something to just complete it. Just put a... And that was an example of, uh, to me, ambiguous that was not necessarily the right choice for me. There's so many ways I can go with this conversation. And what I'm going to ask you is to come back in the future because there's so much more stuff in my research and my notes. But this was... Well, I love your... Hope. I just want to say, let's stop for a second. Your, your, your passion and your love of movies comes through every word that you say. And I'm very astute and perceptive when it comes to reading people because that's what I've done for the last 35 years. You asked me before... Um, about acting and how it has impacted what I do today. And, you know, as an actor, what your primary job is, if you are an artist, is to take the onion, right, and peel it back, right. get to the truth of what is happening. And that's what I do in the work that I do as the doctor, if you will, of audienceology, the doctor of audiences. I am there to really interpret what's being said. And I get the sense, Larry, that you have a similar um, desire for the truth and to get to that essence. Well, this, this is what's known in the business as the perfect segue, because um, I'm going to refer once again to the most recent New York Times, because I get the New York Times every Sunday and I tried to devour it. And this is the headline. Flashpoint for new queer cinema. Looking back at the 1992 Sundance panel, that ignited the LBTQ film movement. The history of film fascinates me. This was a seminal moment. Would you agree or disagree? Oh, 100%. 100%. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I read it, too. I read it too. I read it too. Um, you know, and there's many of those moments throughout, you know, particularly modern film, you know, uh, I did a I did a talk yesterday with a congressman. Um, they're bringing me up to Capitol Hill to um, to speak as an advocate for um, our art form right. and for protecting intellectual property. And uh, you know, we were talking about that sort of very subject of how cultural the cultural impact that um, any number of topics, subjects have, you know, have s s 
have seeped into the, the, the zeitgeist right. of what's going on, but not just here, around the world. And so we, as film lovers, have a responsibility to keep that going um, because it has happens to be, I mean, maybe I'm a little going on a limb here, maybe a little presumptuous, but I would say probably our greatest and longest, greatest and longest export of the United States is our film industry. Because what it has done culturally around the world is nothing short of extraordinary. And to open, to, to, to have gay cinema, for example, um, speak to the disenfranchised, to speak to cultures that can't embrace um, being gay, coming out, human rights violations, et cetera. And that is so many different areas um, of the human condition is, is just the greatest thing ever, you know, and power, tremendous power in that. All right. So we're going to let you go because I know you've got a very busy life, but what I like to do at the end, this is a segment I try to do. I ask, is, this James Lipton? is this James Lipton? I wish. I wish. <laughs> I love him. I my have, favorite curse word. Please tell me it's going to be my favorite curse word. <laughs> that's, why, that's why you're going to come back the next time. But it's close to that. It really is close to that. What, <laughs> okay, I, li- shoot. what I like to try to do is with every guest, because I know when I walk away, I ask myself, good question, bad question, what did I miss? So in the time that you gave us, what did I miss? Well, uh, you mean, what would I like to have communicated on this yeah. podcast? Yeah. Um, I, I think that I really want people to buy my book. Um, that's, a no, that's a no brainer, but go on. Well, I know, but, but let me tell you why. I think that you have an audience of people who are um, more educated about the subject than many podcasts that I've done. Even people that don't have an interest in it will find the book, I think, interesting. But, you know, I conducted, I really did my research. I conducted like 80 interviews and it's super fun. And I think the way that what you took away, I love people listening to take away from this interview, which is um, a little known area of the business that has produced so many big changes in most of the movies that we have seen since movies began. Right. This is not a new process. It's been going on since Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, and Harold Lloyd, all the way up to today, and even more so. And even the streamers and so forth um, adhere to it and, and really embrace audience feedback on their films. So I'll share this story with you, that I did an interview with a book about Josephine Baker, Josephine Baker's cinematic prism. And I actually saw a clip of her dancing in one of her films. So you, oh, talk, really? you talk about the history of movie making and the history of Josephine Baker. I'm sure you're well aware of her, that oh, yes. we actually got to see a clip of her dancing the banana dance. Amazing. Yeah. Just amazing. But it never, are you saying it never made it into the picture? I'd say it's somewhere. We got access to a very short clip through the. But it never, it was never in a movie. It was just a, like a. No, I, I, it was, I don't know if it was the vaudeville act because she did a bunch of films. 
that later were shown in Harlem to a special audience, obviously. But I got to see her dancing the banana oh, dance. Oh, man. What, oh, man. Yeah. So when I do what I do, it's kid in a candy store to have people like you come on and talk about what I, what fascinates me. Are you from Brooklyn, by the way? No. Uh, actually, um, originally Spanish Harlem. Upper East Side. Oh, you're from the city. You're from the city. That was like 90s and the East Side, right? Going way up. My grandmother, uh, my Jewish grandmother had a bodega. Oh, my God. So I love that's it. Story, that's that story's for another time, by the way. Okay. Well, I'd love to talk about that because I'm very proud of my Brooklyn roots and yeah. my Jersey roots. So, Larry, what a pleasure to have um, have spent this time with you. And uh, you are someone that um, I would also very readily invite to a cocktail party that I had. <laughs> well, I tell you what, if they're, if they're ever doing a screening in the metropolitan area, I'll take you up on an invitation because I'd love to sit in the audience and just take in what you know and how it all works. Oh, thanks so much. Man, it's been a pleasure. Kevin Getz, thanks. Pleasure. All, pleasure. Right. all right. After break, some thoughts about the black experience of the Reverend Gail Fisher Stewart. That's coming up next on Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. Me right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Joining us right now is one of my favorite people, Reverend Gail Fisher-Stewart. I also value her thoughts and her observations. Gail, take it away. Thank you, Larry. It's really a pleasure to be with you again. You know, I was listening to the previous session and about it. And at the end with Josephine Baker, you know, that was in 1926 when she danced the Revue Negra. And it was a musical show that was part of the country, you know, France's fascination with jazz culture. But she was so much more than just, just that banana dance. You know, as you said, she was part of the French resistance and she adopted all these kids and she had her own rainbow nation where she was trying to show what this world could really be. And so as, as we come to February and Black History Month and the, the release of my uh, latest book, Black and Episcopalian, The Struggle for Inclusion, which is available through church publishing and on Amazon or a local bookseller, I find that these are very interesting times. I find that they are perilous and confusing times. So I'm glad that this is a place for storytelling. You know, Black History Month is important uh, for any number of reasons. And I'm paraphrasing a saying, but those who have the power to write the story control the story. And that is how it has been and continues to be uh, with the history of this country and how that history, the history of this country, tends to glorify one race and one gender and either ignores or devalues other races and, and, and genders. And as we suggest, you know, there is a more inclusive, a more accurate history. But when we do that, there is backlash, there is anger, because in controlling the, the story, the power is maintained, the power is, is hoarded. I mean, just look at the attack on critical race theory. I mean, which is, is exactly that. It is a theory, a theory that can be proven, but it is not taught anywhere in K through 12, anywhere in this country. It's actually an elective in college. And unless one majors in an area where the discussion of race or racism are part of the major, 
you don't even get critical race theory. But the uproar over critical race theory is really a, a dog whistle that seeks to refocus our attention from the racism and other societal ills that plague our country. So in reality, whiteness, and this is more than white people, this is the concept, the, the belief, the, the concept of, of whiteness can reign supreme. Uh, there are those of us who remember Black History Month when it was Negro History Week. And there were just a handful of African-Americans, Negroes, as we were called then, who were discussed year after year, primarily George Washington Carver and all he did with peanuts. I mean, we have to remember in my lifetime, Martin Luther King Jr. had not made history. Martin Luther King Jr. was our reality. There was no I have a dream speech. And so the focus early on was really on slavery and state rights. That is what we contributed, a whitewashed story of slavery. I mean, this is my experience. This was my experience, that slavery was really benign and was, and was needed for a so-called backwards people to civilize a, a race of people. And so history books might have contained a paragraph on slavery and the Civil War, but it was not focused when, when we talked about when we read about the Civil War, it was not focused on the elimination of slavery, but on Northern aggression. And if you did not have a Black history teacher, a Black teacher, a Black history teacher, uh, Negro History Week was really a blip in the curriculum. And so the seeds for Negro History Week were planted in 1926, oh, that same year with, with Josephine Baker, right? When the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History established the second week of February as, as Negro History Week. Historian Courage Woodson pioneered the idea and got a handful of education departments to recognize the week in their schools. So here we are now, 96 later, and the week has evolved, it's evolved into a month-long tradition. And President Ford actually signed the act in 1976 that it would become Black History Month. And so many of Woodson's aspirations for Negro History Week still resonate today. Uh, the week was supposed to be a special time for us, the country, to collectively celebrate, to bring into the forefront our pride in being Black and our contributions to this country without them being filtered through whiteness, through the white gaze, and to really focus on our contributions, which are many. It is also a time to evaluate white America's commitment to this country's professed ideals of freedom. And can we live up to the ideals put forth in the Declaration of Independence? And as we look at the attack on voting rights and the failure to pass a law that says, if you are a citizen of this country, you have the right to vote unencumbered, that there are no obstacles in the way. Because we remember when you had to past tests. You had how many bubbles are in a bar of soap or how many jelly beans are in a, a glass, a, a jar, or can you recite a certain paragraph from the U.S. Constitution? We thought those days were over, but it should not be against the law to hand out to give people who stand in line for hours in the heat to vote. It should not be against the law 
to provide people relief, to give them a bottle of water. I mean, something is actually wrong with that thinking. So Black History Month is more uh, important than it has ever been because people do not know the history of African Americans in this country. And anti-Blackness is so prevalent in the daily politics and the rhetoric that we endure. In fact, I was on a webinar yesterday with a woman who's known for her preaching and her teaching. And toward the end, she was asked, what was she reading? What books you know, had she been reading? And she rattled off a list of books that dealt with Black life. And she admitted that she didn't know that whites had destroyed the Greenwood community in Tulsa. Oklahoma in 1921, that there had been vibrant and self-sustaining Black communities until whites became jealous and destroyed them, that there were race riots, not begun by Blacks, but by whites who were upset that Blacks believed that they should share in all this country professors to be. And she didn't know, and many whites have no clue about Black history. But that is not a luxury for those of us who are Black or Asian or Indigenous or LGBTQIA. We have to know white history because that is how we survive in this country. But whites do not have to know one iota of Black history, and they are still able to succeed. That is not a reality for those of us who are not white. And because Woodson, Carter G. Woodson, was an academic, Negro History Week focused on education. It shown a light lifting up and celebrating Black excellence and Black experience in this country. He wanted an increased awareness of Negro history in our education system and in society. There's always been, if we are honest, an underrepresentation of Black history in curricula because we don't control the textbook uh, industry. I mean, it's the same with Native Americans and Asian Americans. And now you have some instructors and teachers who are being fired for teaching a more inclusive history of this country. We have parents threatening school board members with violence and death if race is mentioned in school curricula. Books written by Black authors are being removed from school libraries. You know, Larry, um, many college students today are still demanding a curriculum. And that began, uh, that demand began in the, uh, in the 1960s. Uh, that we have curricula that better reflects Black Americans' role in shaping this nation. And in the South, there are some school systems that refuse to teach AP U.S. history, that's advanced placement U.S. history, because of its curriculum on slavery. And then we have to remember Trump's executive order for a more patriotic education. And that can be understood as an attempt to whitewash and limit U.S. history. So Negro History Week then and now Black History Month are intended to be a safeguard against the erasure of a people, the erasure of Black people, and our role in making this country what it has become in the eyes of the world. You know, in, in Woodson's eyes and anyone who cares, erasure has fatal consequences. And he wrote that if a race has no history, it has no worthwhile tradition, it becomes a negligible factor in the thought of the world, and it stands in danger of being exterminated. We could be exterminated, and there are plenty of people in this country who would not care. That's a reality. And so if this country wants to be what it says it wants to be, then the history of all people, 
all races, all cultures who are in this country need to be given equal space and without fear. No fear of the unknown is dangerous. It is a killer. And too many people, their culture and their histories are unknown. And therefore, that causes fear. And that is unfortunate. And so this leads me into, in my book, Black and Episcopalian, The Struggle for Inclusion. As I said, uh, church publishing, Amazon, or your local bookseller uh, can make it available to you. You know, we tend to think of religion as benign, but Western Christianity is caught up in the racism that undergirds all aspects of life in this country. And I recognize that there are plenty of people who don't want to hear this because they have succeeded according to this country's definition of success. But we saw the backlash after Obama was elected, and we thought we had reached the promised land. The beloved community had taken hold only to see hatred laid bare. But the churches contribute to the negation of black lives. And we have black churches, black denominations, not because blacks wanted to worship separately, but because whites did not want us in their churches unless it was up in the balcony or in the back. And we were fed a diet of the Bible that uplifted whiteness and told that we were not created in the image of God. That in some cases, there were two Genesis stories, one for whites and the other for blacks. And we were taught that Slavery was fine with Jesus. And, you know, we have that famous saying from Paul saying, on listen us back, you know, the slavery, slaves obey your masters. But if we really delve into the Bible and our teachings, we find a God where there's truly no black, nor white, no gay, nor straight, and I can go on. And in this book, I, I question whether or not I can be black and Episcopalian with my denomination as the eldest daughter of the Church of England birthed slavery in this country. And so I trace the history of the Episcopal Church in this country, how many of the founding fathers were Anglicans and slaveholders and, have the, and how the church, the actual church parishes, held black people in bondage and believed that it was not a conflict with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we look at race, I propose that we are first black and then Christian, and we can change religions, we can change faiths, we can change churches, but I will be black until the day I die. And I need to make sure that whatever faith tradition I choose lifts us, respects who God has created me to be, and that I and understand that I reflect God's image back into the world. And then I talk about the black church beyond the seven traditional black denominations, but the black church in white denominations and why black parishes, black churches still exist today. And, and, and the call is to make sure we have a voice in the public square. Going on, I, I question how we make disciples, how we form disciples in our churches. And I ask the question, do we really make white clones of our people of color? I ask hard questions as black people in a white denomination, are we really white Christians, white members of the church and black folks? What we have been given or what we have given up to become members of a Western Christianity, that is important because assimilation costs. Assimilation costs, and to assimilate, you have to destroy, you have to deny, you have to give up something of yourself in order to fit in, even in the church. And so do our faith formation classes take into account black cultures, black history, or are we stripped of who we are and made into something we are not? And that goes 
or the ordination process when we make ministers are we stripped of what we bring to the church and informed in something into something that is acceptable to the church and so throughout the book we hear the voices of black uh, ordained and lay members of the church who tell their story of how they have navigated the church and race how does it feel to be the only black person as as the, the pastor in an entire congregation and sometimes the town if you are black and have been called as a pastor of a white church attempting to show that black lives matter, that they're not racist, that they are egalitarian. And so how do you feel when you are asked, when you preach, do you have to, do you have to sound so black? So this book is a journey to really determine if I can be black and Alien, and I know I can be a follower of Jesus, and I can be a Christian because of the history of Christianity tracks back to Ethiopia. Africans forcefully brought here in the holes of slave ships through the Middle Passage brought with them their traditional African religion and also Christianity, a form of Christianity that was not whitewashed. And so, you know, thank you for this opportunity and time, and you know. Um, I'll send you a copy of my book and maybe you can review it when you have time. We will. Uh, Reverend Gail, thank you so much for your thoughts. I consider you a friend of this podcast. You're, Me wel too. you're welcome anytime. I will get the copy of the book and we will bring you back because that's a no brainer. Thank you once again. <laughs> thank you. Blessings. Also, thank you to Kevin Getz, How Moviegoers Shaped the Films We Love, Audienceology. I'm Larry Davidson. Till the next time. Bye bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Cristofaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at LarryDavidsonsProductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She